You've heard this statement as much as I have. There are two types of people in the world. When we hear that, there is always some application of the statement that is about to follow. There are two types of people in the world. Now that is such a universal statement that even Bob Wiley in the movie What About Bob would use that statement to describe his divorce to his psychiatrist, Dr. Leo Marvin. This is what Bob Wiley would say. There are two types of people in the world, those who like Neil Diamond and those who don't. He goes on to say, my ex-wife loved him. And that was the reason for his divorce. There are two types of people in the world. She loved Neil Diamond. I didn't. End of story. Now, we can apply that whole idea of two types of people in the world in a myriad of different ways. There are actually internet tests that help you determine what type of person you are. This one's kind of funny. Take a look at this. It'll help you discover what type of a person you are. some pretty good ones in there. When we watched that before things started, Ray Brossman said, well, one of those is wrong, the Oreo one. There are three types of Oreo eaters. There's the people that just bite the whole cookie. There are those who split it in half. And then there are those that just put the entire cookie in their mouth all in one shot. So every once in a while, there are three types of people in the world. We go through all of that, starting with Bob Wiley and all the way through the video, just to be able to say this. The Bible would say there are two types of people in the world, those who will be judged by God and those that have been rescued from judgment by God. Two types of people in the world, those that will be judged by God and those that have been rescued from judgment by God. Now, the Bible is real plain in the way it says that. If you have your Bible with you, open to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Blesses my heart to hear as many Bibles turning as there are now. In first service, for some reason, we didn't have as many Bibles opening. So I love to hear the pages of your Bible turning. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. The writer says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Has always been the case that there are two types of people in the world, those who will be judged by God and those who will be rescued from judgment by God. That's always been the case from the beginning of time right up to the present. The heart of God is such that he doesn't want anyone to face that type of judgment. In fact, the heart of God and the character of God is such that he wants everyone to experience that rescue. We would call it salvation. He wants everyone to be saved. And he made that possible through his son, Jesus Christ. 
And that's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand. That rescue, that salvation is possible through Jesus. Jesus was God's plan to reveal his heart and his character to all of mankind. But like any good plan, a strategy is required. And God's strategy to make sure that as many people as possible heard the message of salvation is this. It is his church, his people. That has always been God's strategy from the beginning of time to present. God wanted his people to carry the message of salvation, the message of hope, the message of rescue to everyone around them. In the New Testament, there is actually a commission of God's people to do that very thing. Let me show it to you. It's found in Matthew chapter 28. Turn there with me. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 19. Now, when I say this is a commission, it is the great commission. That's how the Bible sets it apart. That might be the title above this section of scripture in your Bible, the great commission. This isn't just a commandment. It isn't just a calling. It is a commission of all of God's children to do the same thing. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 19. Listen to this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's God's commission given through his son. If you're reading from a red letter edition of the Bible, those letters should be read. Jesus said that. Those were his last words before he ascended into heaven. Listen to it again. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now the church as a whole, when I say that, I mean a much larger church than just Libby Christian Church. The church as a whole is very good at portions of that commission. We are very good at making disciples, teaching people the things of God, helping them grow in their knowledge and their experience of the Lord. We're very good at the teaching side of discipleship, helping people get their mind wrapped around certain things that come directly out of the Bible and directly out of a walk with the Lord. We're really good at baptizing people. As a whole, the church is extremely good at that and always has been. In Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people were baptized at one time and added to the number of the church. There have been massive baptismal movements just like that since the time of the book of Acts, the first century. I just heard about a month ago about a church in California that baptized their 50,000th person. They have a 40-year history, and in those 40 years, they have baptized 50,000 people into the Lord. Isn't that cool? Just last Sunday, a week ago today, another church in California had a, a baptism service where they invited anybody in their church that had not been baptized by immersion to respond to their invitation, and they would baptize them that day. 548 people were baptized that day. Just a week ago today, 548 people baptized by one church. 
That is remarkable. Now, they just went into the ocean because that's where they lived, and they set up several different places where people could go to be baptized. Still, it took them hours to finish that, and nobody grew tired of it because we're good at baptizing people. We know how to celebrate that. In the history of Libby Christian Church, 55-year history of Libby Christian Church, the best count we have says that somewhere between 1,400 and 1,500 people have been baptized in Libby, Montana. In just the past couple of years, 130-plus people have been baptized. We are really good at that part of the Great Commission. But the part we struggle with, as does the church as a whole, not everyone and not in every application, but as a whole, the part that we struggle with the most is the go part. The very first word of this command, go into all the world. We don't like to go. It makes us uncomfortable. We don't like to go because it's unfamiliar. We don't like to go because that might take us into the land of the unknown. So rather than going, we send. We send missionaries. We send people to go and do what the Bible tells us to do. And that makes us feel a little bit better about how we approach this commission from Jesus. Yet it does not change the commission. The commission itself says, go. You go. And there are no geographical limitations to it. You go to the very ends of the earth. And you carry the gospel so that you can explain to people my plan for them to understand my heart. You go. You carry the gospel so that they will know who my son is. And by knowing who my son is, they will be rescued from the judgment that is coming. And they will know my heart. And they will know my character. So God says go. That was his strategy. Always has been. It always has been. All the way back in the Old Testament, there is this wonderful pattern for what this looks like. But when you read this passage, you may not recognize that this Old Testament story that we are all so familiar with has a New Testament application. And more than that, it has a strategic application in God's plan. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6 with me. We're going to go to this so familiar story that maybe you have jumped over some of the details. It is so familiar that you may not have recognized all the teaching contained within it. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 1. This is the story of Noah. Listen to what the Bible says. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupt their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh. You shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Familiar story. It's taught in Sunday school to kids that are very small. It's taught in middle school and high school Sunday school. It is preached by preachers and taught by teachers. Everybody knows this story. But maybe you still struggle to wrap your head around what it looked like in the beginning when God came to Noah. Well, let me help with that just a little bit. Here's an excerpt from the movie Evan Almighty. Take a look at this. Instead of punting from deep in their own territory, they're already at the midfield right now. Yeah, and that's just that quick throw. And again, it's not a three-step drop. You just, you just. Dad, what are you doing? I'm watching this. Genesis six fourteen. Gen six fourteen. Joan, do we have a Bible anywhere? Genesis 6.14 Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Gopher wood. Gopher wood. Get it? Go. Well, it's not really gopher wood. I just like the word play. No, it's pine and maple. It was clear cut from this valley to make room for all those houses. Excuse me, do I know you? Not as well as I'd like. I see you got my housewarming gift. That was you? You sent those? What are they for? Hey, hey. Genesis chapter 6, verse 14. I want you to build an ark. You want me to build an ark? Yes. So that's why the tools, and you are responsible for the wood? Mm-hmm. All right, well, uh, let's just start over. Ha-ha! Hello? 
I am Evan Baxter. I'm born June 15, 1962, 8 pounds, 11 ounces. Mother's Carol Ann Parker, father Eugene Evan Baxter. Ooh, you have internet access. Very impressive. Do you also have cable? You're a clean freak. You care much too much about your outward appearance. Your left nipple is a quarter of an inch higher than your right nipple, and when you were a little boy, you were afraid of Gumby. Who are you? I'm God. You're God? Yes. And I want you, Evan Baxter, to build a mark. Okay, you know what? This conversation is a little thing I like to call over. But I gotta get going. Because, frankly, I have an art to build. Busy, 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 busy. Nice meeting you. Take care. Oh, and... All right! See you later! Get off, Kevin. It's over. That case is gone. I am successful. I'm powerful. I'm handsome. I'm happy. Successful, powerful, handsome. Evan! Oh! Get out, son. This is the beginning of wisdom. How did you get in here? Come on, call the cops. Oh, no, no need. Look, look. There's one right there. Right there. Officer! 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 Go, Jack! 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 Pedestrian in the crosswalk. <laughs> oh. Oh. Though a really funny depiction of what it might have been like, the problem with that whole clip is this it is theologically a mess. It's just a total mess. There's nothing accurate about it at all, beginning with this. If you were to read Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 7, and Genesis chapter 8 all over again, here's what you would find. After the Lord came to Noah and said, I want you to build an ark, Noah never once, not one time, argued with him. In fact, we don't hear anything about Noah even in a conversation with him. What we find is at the end of chapter 6, this simple little statement, Noah did it. He did all that the Lord commanded him to do. Because God said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to provide a means of salvation, of rescue from the judgment that is coming. I want you to provide that. Noah just did it. He just did it. There seems to be somewhat of a mix-up between the story of Noah and the story of Jonah and how Hollywood handled this. The Bible would say, Noah was just faithful to what the Lord told him to do because he walked with God. Now, there are a number of scholars, learned people, that have tried to figure out exactly how long it took Noah to build that ark. Some people say, based on Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, it took him 120 years. There are some other people, engineers, that would say it took somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 years. There's a new group of scholars that have tried to do some biblical math and have arrived at this place. It was a 45 to 55-year process. And a lot of people will stumble over that, trying to figure out exactly how long it took. They want to look at what the design was. And though that is fascinating, it isn't the place to allow yourself to get hung up. It's not the place for you to stop. As a preacher, I'm not concerned about the carpentry. As a preacher, I'm not concerned about the timeline. As a preacher, what I am really fascinated with is what Noah was doing while building the ark. And maybe this is why it fascinates me so much. The Bible gives us a glimpse of it. He was preaching. That's what he was doing. 
Keep your finger there in Genesis chapter 6, but go with me to the New Testament, to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, listen, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And Peter goes on to talk about how God provides for people. But this is what he says about Noah. He was a herald of righteousness. Now we have to assume that either by trade or hobby, he was a carpenter, but he was also a preacher. The skills that God had given him allowed him to build the ark, but the commission that God gave him was that of preaching, to be a herald of righteousness. Now, he could do that very easily because back in Genesis chapter 6, the Bible tells us that he was a righteous man. Righteousness at the heart of it is defined this way. He was in right standing with God. That's how the Bible would describe him. And he was a herald of righteousness made easier because Genesis chapter 6 tells us he walked with God. So all he had to do was tell people about his walk with the Lord. That's it. And so he did. Only eight people responded, but that's up to God. He was not blessed with all of the details. He was not blessed with the end game. God did not tell him, this is how this is all going to play out. He just said, I want you to build an ark as a means of rescue, as a means of salvation. And while you're doing it, Noah, you tell people what's going on because they're going to ask. He may well have said to him, though we don't know this to be true, but he may well have said to him, I will bring the animals to you. You go to the people, because that was God's plan. God will take care of creation the way he wants to take care of creation. The commission remains the same. You go to people. You don't worry about the details. You don't worry about all the things that have to be taken care of. That's God's worry. I like the way John MacArthur says this. This is the essence of faith. Faith doesn't have to understand. It doesn't have to comprehend. Faith reaches out for something that is beyond experience, beyond comprehension. I think we understand that a little bit. We walk by faith and not by sight, right? We've entrusted our eternity to God. We're living in faith, trusting Christ for a heaven we've never seen, to escape a judgment we've never seen. The Bible says that all sinners will go to hell. The Bible says that there will be a holocaust of divine judgment on the earth in the future by fire. We believe that. We've not seen that. But we live in faith, and by faith we obey the gospel, which is the ark of safety for us. God has provided for us an ark to rescue us from the future judgment, and we have gone into that ark. The ark is Christ. That is the very first picture that we get of God's plan to rescue people. But through it, we see God's heart and his character. He has given us Jesus as an ark. Interestingly enough, Jesus would talk about Noah as he was presenting what it means to rescue people from a judgment that still waits. Let me show that to you. We're going to go to the Gospel of Matthew again, the 24th chapter starting in verse 36. Again, red letters, Jesus' words. 
But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus himself would use the illustration of Noah to help us understand the commission that he would give in just four more chapters. Just a few hours after this, or actually a few days after this, when he would meet again with the disciples 40 days later, he would say, you get them into the ark. You go to them. Whatever that takes, you go to them and you bring them back. The ark really is this beautiful picture of Christ. Think about it. The whole thing begins with this statement in Genesis chapter 6. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now that's from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Some translations say, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I love the interchangeability of those two words, favor and grace, because favor means that he found the right standing with God. Again, that ties back to righteousness, but it all really begins with grace. Noah's story began with grace and so does ours. Once we have received it and we have gone into Christ, just like Noah, when he went into the ark, he was safe. And while in the ark, he was protected and comforted by God. When we are in Christ, the same thing is true for us. We are protected and comforted by God. And when the Lord shuts the door in Genesis chapter 6, judgment follows. And when God shuts the door in the future, judgment will follow. The Bible is very plain about that. That's why this is such a beautiful, beautiful picture of salvation, of rescue through Christ, getting people into the ark. So the commission, when we boil it down, is really this. Be an ark builder and then be an ark inviter. That's the best way to look at it. The ark is already built. Jesus has already come. Now all you have to do is go invite people to come into it. And the commission says, you go do that wherever the Lord leads you to. You go do that to the very ends of the earth. You just get out and invite, and the people will come. What happens after that is up to God. But you get them in, and you get them to a safe place. Maybe that's why Peter would write like this in his first letter. We've already looked at 2 Peter. Let's go to 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water, Baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Do you see the tentacles that go out from Noah's story? As Peter is writing about this, he would actually call out the idea of baptism as he talks about the water that the ark floated on. 
Baptism is that place where when God closes the door, we know that we are safe. Baptism is a door-closing part of our relationship with God. I am now safe in Him. And remember, Jesus said in the Great Commission, you go into all the world, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. You make disciples of them and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit so that they are secure in the ark, so that the door is closed and they walk with God from this point forward. Those are the tentacles that go out with the commission The commission is for all believers to carry the gospel, to make sure that people hear it. We have to go get them. That's how God set this whole thing up. His heart, his character would be made known through his son, Jesus. And then he says to every believer, now you go tell people. I'll do the rest. You go tell people. As a church, That's exactly what we want to do. A year ago in January at our congregational meeting, we announced that by the end of the year 2020, we wanted to be able to look back over the history of this congregation and say that we have no regrets in regard to the Great Commission, that we have taught people what the Bible says. We have trained them. We have discipled them. We have baptized them. And we have given them the opportunity to go, to carry the gospel. And like I said, as we got started as a whole, the Western church has not been great at going. We've been very good at sending, but we've not been great at going. And though there have been periods in the life of Libby Christian Church where we have sent people out, and since January of last year, we've sent a number of people onto the mission field in different ways, and that has been very exciting. We want to amp that up now so that there are more opportunities for God's people to listen and respond to God's commission and go and carry the gospel. So over the course of the next two and a half to three years, our leaders have set a goal of seeing 200 people from this congregation go in short-term missions to different places. And we're getting very aggressive at how we are setting that up. In February of this next year, we have a group of 10 men that are going to Nicaragua to work with the tribal groups upriver in Nicaragua to get the gospel to them to a place where they don't hear it much and they're not tremendously receptive. But the missionary that we are working with, Marcus Pearson, has a long-term vision for that place. And so every time he's able to take people there, things get better and they get more of the gospel spread. So we have a group of 10 men that are going upriver in Nicaragua to work with Marcus in a myriad of different ways. We had a meeting with him on Thursday night, and the things that he is asking these guys to do is really pretty remarkable. And we're looking forward to seeing what's going to happen through that, from medical missions all the way through to sustainability for these people. But in the process of it, the showing of the Jesus film and the basic presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to people that have not heard it. Next October, a year from this October, there's a group of women that are going to Cambodia to work with the Rafa House Ministries, particularly towards young women that have been caught in the sex trades, to pull them out of that physically and to spiritually give them hope by giving them the gospel. There's a group of people that are going to Gleanings for the Hungry next year. We are in the beginning stages of putting together a small group of people to take vacation Bible school to Europe because Europe is currently surrendering at a staggering rate the hold that Christianity has on that continent. 
they are letting it go to the point that some estimates today say that less than 1% of Europe is still Christian. And as they are losing the hold that they have, that we have there, the Muslims are coming in and filling the void. So we have a group of people that are looking at going to Europe. They haven't decided for sure where to take vacation Bible school that we do here, there, so that they can impact a change. In 2019 or beyond, we are looking at sending a group of people back into East Africa to work with the well drilling ministry. We have people that are looking at going to work at Union Gospel Missions in C, not Seattle, in Spokane. We have a group of people that are looking at some Indian reservation ministries, some end-of-the-earth ministries. Some of those are located within the United States, but most of them beyond, because that's what the Bible tells us to do. You go. And we want people to be without excuse when you look back. And that means as a church, we have to provide opportunity for those things to happen. So we are. Now, there are some other things that are happening along with that. Number one, Matt Warner is going to be sitting at the tip of the spear of this effort. Matt is going to be looking to get 200 people onto the mission field. If you are interested today, we're going to ask you to go to the information desk and just put your name on a list. We don't know what mission that will be, but we would also ask that in the coming days, weeks, and months, you pray that God would open your heart to opportunities when Matt starts putting more and more trips together. You pray that God will place it on your heart to be faithful to what the Lord told us to do, to go. Now, we are fully aware of the fact that doing something like this is quite costly. It really is, but we're willing to pay that price. And we want to give opportunity to people that may never go on one of these trips for medical reasons or age-related reasons, whatever it might be. We want to give the opportunity for you to still participate. And so here's how we're going to do that. For the past three years, we've had a remarkable team of people that have taken our Change for a Dollar ministry and affected massive changes within our community because of your generosity. In the last three years, you have given tens of thousands of dollars in $1 increments every week to bring about huge change in our community, and that wave continues on today. They have worked so hard that they've kind of run out of some ideas, and so we're taking a break from Change for a Dollar, and we are shifting that up to change the world for a dollar, just one dollar. If your generosity holds the way it has the last three years, we are going to be able to help a number of people, 200 to be exact, to get out in short-term missions. Now, that's not going to pay the whole bill for everybody, not even close, but it's going to help one dollar at a time. Change the world for a dollar. The boxes are back at the back of the auditorium again. They've been gone for the past five or six weeks. They are back. And from this point forward, their emphasis is going to be on changing the world through short-term missions, looking for missions opportunities that will really allow us to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth, to do what the Bible tells us to do. You can give in the boxes. You can give online just like you could with change for a dollar. But my encouragement to you is be involved in that. Help people go, but don't see that as an excuse to not go, because remember, the commission is not send, the commission is go, and I hope the Lord will place it on your heart to do that very thing, and he'll take care of the details. He'll take care of the end results. What happens is up to God. You just do what the Lord tells you to do. 
We had a great theologian in this church. We have had many. And he passed away a few years ago and left a huge hole, as always happens when the saints die. In this particular case, man's name was John Hightower. John, just a, a wonderful guy who saw the gospel so simply. John wrote out his testimony. He gave it at Celebrate Recovery at one point. I still have a copy of it, and it's, it is inspirational. Here's the things that John would say in his testimony. When he became a Christian later in life, as things were revealed to him, he just did it. When Jesus was revealed to him, he responded. When baptism was revealed and taught to him, he responded. When ministry opportunities were presented to the church, he said, I just did it because that's what we were told to do. I just did it. And that was John. What an incredible attitude. Need me to do it? All right, I'm in. I'll do it. God, take care of the rest. I'll do it. So this is my encouragement to you as we look at what's going to happen in the next two and a half to three years. Just do it. Be a part of it. And you see what God does with it. There will be opportunities for many excuses. Put those aside. They don't come from the Lord. You just do it. Respond. See what God does with that. See what he does with you through that. I've been on a number of short-term missions trips through the years, and I can tell you I've never regretted it. It's been a life-changing experience, not only for me, but for the people that I have taken into those experiences. You do it, and you let the Lord take care of the rest. That's all you have to do. As the worship team's on their way up, I want to share with you something that has just caught my attention this past week. I'd never seen this before. And I actually, after discovering it the first time, did a little digging to find out if there were other people in agreement with this. I have never really sat down and thought through how many people were alive at the time of Noah. I just haven't. I'm not a mathematician, like I already said, not really a scientist, and so I don't think that way. Numbers aren't an inspirational thing to me, and so I, I don't spend a lot of time with them. But boy, in this regard, I, I kind of think I should have. I should have spent some time with this. So let me illustrate this for you. Where is Josh Erickson at? Josh is back there. Josh, were you in first service? Okay, good. Josh is an engineer, and numbers are kind of an inspirational thing to Josh. Josh, how many people do you think were alive when Noah was on the earth? Now, I'll help you out. That was 1,650 years into human history. 1,650 years. How many people do you think were alive? A couple million. So, Josh is going to say two million. I'm going to come over to this side. Ken Farmer's sitting here. Ken? How many people do you think were alive during the time of Noah, 1,650 years into human history? A million. Okay, so we've got two million over here. We've got a little more of a conservative idea over here with a million. And to both of you, let me just say a big old swing and a miss. So here's what these mathematicians are saying now. This is, this is mind-boggling to me. During the time of Noah, when he was preaching, however long that was, and building the ark, there were 7 billion people on the face of the earth. 7 billion. Now here's how they figured that. You have to remember that we were dealing with unbelievably long lifespans. Methuselah, the oldest man to ever live, was 969 years old. And other people were matching that same lifespan. So if you imagine that they were of childbearing ages around 15 and they lived for another 950 years, that's a lot of children. 
And they had the command of God to go and to reproduce, to fill the earth. There was no birth control. They were told to go and do this. As they put together the numbers, they arrive at 7 billion people. Now, here's part of the way that they proved that that type of exponential growth was possible. In the year 1850, there, was one, there were 1 billion people on the face of this planet. 1850, just 170 years ago, roughly, 1 billion people. By 1920, there were 2 billion people. By 1950, there were 3 billion people. And at the last count, we are pushing against 7 billion people people. In 150 years, 170 years, we have gone from 1 billion to 7 billion. That type of exponential growth is possible. So here's the whole point of that, and this is what has been staggering to me. 7 billion people on the face of the earth and only 8 got on the ark. But Noah was responsible for what God told him to do, and he did it. He did it. We do the same. As I read Matthew chapter 24 and I hear about a judgment that awaits and with Pioneer Bible translators sharing with us what they did during Sunday school, it is not lost on me that we are headed back to the 7 billion mark. I don't know if that is of any significance at all. That is up to God to work out. But maybe, maybe it matters. But our commission is simple. Go, carry the gospel, and invite people into the ark.